Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, a lot to talk about today. I want to talk about um, uh, these, the relationship between uh, Yaakov and, and Esau, uh, the twin brothers, and, and uh, just, just how complicated that, that relationship was, and touch upon certain points. Just, just a, 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 a tiny overview, certainly nothing uh, too much in detail, um, but... Uh, but, but we'll go into it a little bit. And, and I just, before we get into it, I just want to tell you uh, just a story that happened to me last week. I, I, I sort of got uh, spiritually greedy last week, and, and I had to go to Dallas, and uh, I decided that I was going to try to give this talk last week anyway, and try to combine both things. So, so basically... I'll just tell you the story. I missed my flight there, and I missed my flight back. <laughs> so not, not exactly, but, but I'll tell you the details, and, and just here's the story. So I le- yeah, I, no, it was, it was, it was, it was 1110. I, 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 I guess, well, here's some basic um, life advice. Know when your flight is actually leaving if you want to make the flight. <laughs> that would be, that would be for starters. I, I kind of had a sense memory that it was at 11.30, which was completely incorrect. I was only 20 minutes off, you know, in the wrong direction. It was 10 after 11 that, that the flight left. So I thought I had more time than I did. So anyway, I gave the talk and, and, uh, and got to the airport and, you know, went for the automatic check-in. You know, where, so I put in my credit card and it said, well, you've missed this flight because I was too late to check in. Because you have to check in by, I guess, a half an hour earlier, whatever it is, 40 minutes. I don't, I don't even know what it is. That's, an, that's another thing I should learn, like, when I have to get there. But anyway, that aside, this was within, this was on the wrong side of their comfort zone. So then it said the next flight arriving in Dallas is 9.30. Now, um, I was supposed to be there at uh, 6 so arriving at 9.30 was definitely going to be a problem since the speech I was supposed to give there was before 9.30. So anyway, that's a disaster, basically, since, since it was a banquet dinner, and it, it was a total disaster. So I went, I, 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 I immediately thought, okay, I'm in a crunch, and one thing that I know when you're in a crunch is always ask to speak directly to a manager, because otherwise you waste precious time climbing through the ranks, you know. So I asked to speak to a manager, and someone directed me to um, this person who did not have a friendly look on his face, and I was really scared. And I told him, I said, you know something, I'm the, I'm the speaker at a banquet dinner tonight, and I, you know, they, and he looked at me, and he just shook his head and looked at me like, I was really a low life, and uh, he said, "Well, I'll see what I can do." No, he didn't say that. That's too friendly. He said something less friendly than that. He said, "He said, well, all right. I think that's what he said." And then, and then, I'll see. I don't think he said, "I'll see what I can do." Just, I'll see. So he goes and he starts, you know, typing, 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 you know, and. Um, then he picks up the phone and he talks to the person at the gate and he, and uh, then he just looked at me and again he shook his head in a really sort of like sorrowful way and then handed me the boarding pass and it was like all right thank God I'm on so 
Thank God that worked out. Okay. So I got on. Now, on the other side of it, I was now, I was now in Dallas, and um, I got up to speak. You know, they told me different amounts of time. At first they said, okay, you'll speak for an hour. And I thought to myself, that's too long, you know. I don't want to hear me speak for an hour, you know. So, but anyway, whatever. And then later on they were like... <laughs> This was at the Dallas Community Colo. And they actually had a big dinner. There were like, there were, there were 613 people there. So that was an amazing thing. And it was their biggest event. And it was the first time they, they had to move to a hotel in order to house all the people. And a fantastic institution. Really, really great. They're doing amazing, amazing work there. And having a huge impact on the community. And um, so then they said, no, it'll be for 40 minutes. And it's like, all right, well, that's, that's, that, I think that's probably better. And then, you know, they, you, at any banquet dinner, if you've ever been to one of these things, there's so many awards and honorees and programs announced and fundraising and all the rest. So now it's 9 o'clock. My flight leaves at 10.30. I haven't spoken yet. So figure my slot now is from 9 to 9.30. And then it's really cutting it close. Right? So... So I get up there at nine and I start, you know, the speech and thank God it went well. And then I've got my clock in front of me and I see at 930 someone from the other side of the room by the door texts me like, done, stop. And I was thinking like, you know what, the speech isn't over yet. It needs like, needs a little bit more. And... I thought to myself, I'm really playing with fire here because I'm, I'm, this is absolutely coming out of the expense of me making the flight. I'm not going to make the flight. But I also felt an obligation to do what I was doing correctly in the middle of that, and the speech wasn't over yet. So I finished the speech and then walked directly from the podium outside the hall into a waiting cab. You know, it was like a straight line into the cab. Now, there was a rainstorm and lightning. <laughs> and a cabbie who didn't seem what I would call highly motivated. <laughs> so, he's driving, and I'm thinking, well, maybe I can do a pre-check-in, and I'm calling home and asking my wife and kids to check me in, and they weren't able to, and then I'm calling the operator for American Airlines, and... She can help, and, and, but she did reassure me that the plane was on time. <laughs> so, just enough. I can't help you, but I can give you a lot more anxiety. You know, so, so I, 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 you know, some airports are kind of strange. Like, you can go, oh, well, here's American, and then you look about, you know, 200 yards up. Oh, and there's American also. So, Dallas-Fort Worth is one of those places. So, anyway, he drops me off at the at the wrong American. So now, at this point, the flight is leaving at 10.30. It is 5 or 10 after 10. So I'm clearly... I'm, it's not good. It's, it's really not good at this point. And I have to describe this site because I'm, I, I see it in my mind's eye as I'm talking right now. It's a massive airport, and the lights are dim. The lights are almost off. And there is no one there. 
which is a very eerie kind of thing when you've got such a large space that's empty, that's clearly designed for throngs, you know? So I'm there, and, and there's no one there. And I'm, like, walking, and then it says, to all gates. And I think, okay, that's an improvement. To all gates, that's at least something. And it's got lines, and first of all, the doors are locked. There's no one stationed there. And it's kind of like got all those, like, you know, the, not velvet ropes, but you know those ropes that are there? So it's like, okay, well, I guess, I guess not to all gates, you know? It's like, I can't get through there. So I'm walking and I'm walking, and I can't even find someone to tell me, you are not making this flight. In other words, it's not like I haven't made the flight. I can't even find someone to insult me for asking if I can make the flight. Then as I'm walking, all of a sudden, in the middle of, just to give you an idea of how large a space this is, all of a sudden, within the airport, I now get to a hotel. There's a hotel, the Hyatt, in the airport. And I still haven't gotten to the other American. Right? So I'm walking, and I'm just like, ah. And then I see someone, and they say, okay, American is that way. And it wasn't too far down. Now what I see is, the equivalent, I don't know, I'm just estimating. It felt like the size of a football field. Maybe it was smaller. With one very long, long aisle where you can check in. Completely empty. With two people behind the counter. In this massively long counter, right? So I walked up to the person. Now it's probably a quarter past, maybe 20 past 10 for a 10.30 flight which is on time. And, and I just thought to myself, you know what, I'm not even going to bother to explain. I just said, um, you know, the 1030 to LA. <laughs> so what am I going to say, right? And this woman was so nice. And she, you know, typing, 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 <laughs> typing, typing, typing. And then she picks up a phone and then, her nicest, sweetest voice, you know, very much not like the person trying to get to Dallas. She goes, hi, it's Marie. I have someone here. Is there any room on the 1030? And then she goes, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay. And she says, it's not happening. <laughs> and I thought, I said, can I speak to the supervisor? And she said, I'm the supervisor. She was like, all right. She said they had to reroute another flight to that flight. Now, in my limited experience traveling, that's usually, that's the end of the story. If there's a whole other flight of people going on that flight, it's, it's over at that point. Then she goes, I said, isn't there anything that you can do? She goes, wait, there is something I can do. I was like, great. So then it's typing, 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 typing. And then she says, I can get you um, uh, on for tomorrow morning standby. I'm like, that's what, that's, that's what you can do for me? Tomorrow morning standby? And I'm like, oh, I, I'm going to have to stay at a hotel tonight. This is not going to go over with my family or at work. This is not, this is not good can't believe this. She said to me, Mr. Sachs, what happened? I said, well, it's raining. and <laughs> I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't have an answer. 
So she says, well, here. And now she hands me a boarding pass, and she says, this was for tomorrow's flight, standby. She says, this will get you through security. And I thought, all right. So I go to security. Again, empty, no line except for the TSA people, completely empty. And I'm rushing, and I've got, if I could possibly make this, five minutes to get to the gate. And it's a giant airport, and there, it just seems like, an, just the whole thing seems absurd. I go through security, then I guess I had my belt on still, and they want me to go through again, and I'm like, ah. it just seems, it seems surreal at this point. And, all right, I go back, I can hardly think straight, then I'm walking as fast as I can, it's a long walk, I get to the gate. Now, the gate is, you know how they have someone behind the counter? There's no one behind the counter. It's dark. It's locked. Empty. And I thought, oh, all right. And then I, I see one over there's someone, and I start talking to her, and I asked her about Los Angeles. And I realized that gate was actually the gate on the ticket, but that was for tomorrow's flight. So she says Los Angeles, and she points down. She says that way. And it's like another three blocks. And I'm walking as fast as I possibly can. And at that point, it hit me. I said, I just heard a voice in my head. David, you, you didn't pray yet. And I, I had no strength and no faith, really. I mean, I guess that would be the word. And, and I said something like, please, God. I think that was the most I could get out. And I get to the end, and I see now there are two people behind the counter of the gate, about four or five people waiting in what looks like standby mode, like they're waiting to see if they can get in standby. And then I see on the screen there's about 10, 15 names for standby. And I walked up, and... Uh, and I said to the woman behind the counter, I handed her my ticket, and I said, I said, you know, I was on for this flight, but I was late, so I got bumped. And then she went, just go on. And she just kind of, just like, like with her hand, she just like motioned me toward the plane. And she typed, handed me a boarding pass, I couldn't believe it. It was like I was dreaming, you know? And I walked onto the flight, and in my row, it was like one of these airplanes where there were three seats on one side in an aisle and three seats on another side. And in my row, there was a guy with a yarmulke and a white beard. And I walked on, and he said to me, I missed your talk because he was at the dinner. He said, I missed your talk because I had to make the flight. <laughs> he said, but my wife heard it and she loved it. <laughs> and then I sat down and that was it. So, you know, you never know. You never know. You never know. You never know. You know, how many... 
How many things are available to us and we don't try? You know, how many doors are actually open to us and we don't, we don't, we don't, we'll never find out because we didn't try. Because we were too afraid. Because we saw walls where there weren't walls. You know? And we couldn't possibly imagine that the answer could be yes. You know, I've, we imagine that there, there have to be certain kind of like signs or conditions that are favorable in our eyes before we're willing to take the next step. And sometimes you can meet with indifference and semi-hostility, and then the answer is yes. And it's shocking. But I certainly, if you think over your own life, I've certainly had those experiences. Like, I can think of a, a particular job I got on probably my best credit, where the interview was just so lackluster, I couldn't even tell you, and then got the job. You know? So, you know, we have to be really careful about being sensitive or overly sensitive in ways that can really hold us back. And, you know, I, I once heard, it's, it's kind of a, a related thought, but you'll see where I'm going with this, that the, that the Yetzirah, the, the negative inclination, that, that force which tries to hold us back in life, um, that, that it plays a trick on us, which is, which is that if someone in the community asks us to do something, right, something that needs to get done, the, we hear a voice inside our head, or this, the Yetzer comes and tells us, who am I to take on such a large task on behalf of the community? You know, I, I, I'm not someone who can accomplish such a thing. In other words, it comes to us as a voice of modesty and humility. And so we, we withdraw from a community obligation um, because we feel as though, from a standpoint of humility and humbleness, that we're not up to the task. And yet if someone insults us, that some vo- same voice says, Do you know who I am? <laughs> Do you have any idea who you're talking to? And so all of a sudden, it, it allows us to be the complete opposite. When it comes to our own honor, our own covet, all of a sudden we're, we're, we're completely worthy. We're completely worthy, you know, from the, from the, from the greatest perspective. So it's the worst of both worlds. When it comes to being insulted, we, allow, we, we can't fathom the, the, the concept that, that someone would even attempt to insult us due to our, 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 our greatness. And yet, when it comes to actually exerting ourselves for other people, ah, who am I? Who am I? You know? So, so we have to be careful in terms of evaluating our goals and, and pursuing our goals that we can't allow ourselves to be so sensitive, to think that, oh, this person, like, this person, if he was really interested, or if she was really interested, or whatever it was, they certainly wouldn't have phrased it that way, or whatever it is, especially with emails. I don't know if everyone knows this, but there are certain things that people won't tell you about emails. Like, for instance, if you're one of those people who writes emails in all capital letters, 
please stop immediately. (laughs) Somehow, no one has told you yet that that's the equivalent of yelling. That means you're yelling. Okay? And don't do that. Okay? There are other things in emails. Don't make jokes. I write comedy for a living. Do not make jokes in emails. They will be misinterpreted. People don't understand jokes in emails. There's a sarcastic tone which doesn't come across, and it sounds like you're just openly insulting them. So don't try. Save it for a conversation. You know? Um, I heard uh, someone on this uh, podcast recently say something interesting. Just the same idea, just just give you a different bit of imagery to imagine it. They've got these um, fish farms where they, you know, they breed fish and then harvest them and they've got them all in a little lake area so that you don't have to go fishing for them. And, you know, it's like planting carrots or whatever it is. So it's fish instead. And to keep them from going to certain places, um, for whatever reasons they have, they want to keep the fish within a confined area, I guess. They, what they do is they put up bubbles and it's sort of like, it's sort of like, uh, I don't know, it's oxygen bubbles, whatever it is, but it, uh, it's sort of like a, a curtain of bubbles and there's nothing stopping from the, the fish from swimming right through it. And yet the fish perceive that as an impenetrable wall. And yet it isn't. It's the easiest thing in the world for them to swim right through. And so, so the next time something comes your way and you say, no, the gate is closed, I can't do that, remember this and ask yourself the question, am I being too sensitive? Is it really true? Is it worth one or two more tries? You know, it doesn't mean you're always going to be wrong. Sometimes it, 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 it is enough. But less often than we think. And that small difference, that less often than we think, can make all of the difference in the world. Literally all of the difference in the world. Um, so, so let's talk a little bit about um, Yaakov and Esav. It's a very interesting point um, the Zohar brings down, which is that when Yaakov was... Um, there's a whole, it's, a, it's a, actually a very, very, very deep, kind of mysterious thing in the Torah. I'll just give you an overview. I, it's, it's worthy of uh, many, many talks, but I'll just touch on it, just because the point I want to make is, is related to it, but I don't want to get into the whole thing in general. Basically, toward the end of, the, toward the end of Yaakov's stay with Lovin, um, they, they are talking salary and, and things like this. By the way, the amazing thing about Yaakov, or one of the amazing things about him, unlike the, any, almost any other figure in the entire Torah, 
is you see him in almost every capacity. You see him as a son. You see him as a grandson. You see him as a brother. You see him as a father. You see him as a husband. You see him as a grandfather. You see him as an employee. You see him as a son-in-law. It's all of these, you see him in, in almost every area that a person can go through in life. So it's, it's very, very, very interesting. And um, anyway, in, in the context of him being an employee, you see him sort of negotiating a salary. And what he does is he makes an arrangement. And again, this is very, very, very deep, and we're not going to go into it. But he makes an arrangement with, um, with Lovin, uh, who's also his father-in-law, that from now on, because Yaakov is a shepherd, all of the sheep that, are, that come out looking a certain way, meaning spotted or speckled or whatever it is, those will belong to me and that will be my salary. And Levin agrees. Now, Yaakov does something, and like I say, what was going on in terms of that is, is very Kabbalistic and amazing and worth exploring on your own. But, but that aside, what Yaakov does is, he takes some sticks and he peels the sticks and he puts them in their watering trowel where they mate and they come out a certain way which is advantageous to Yaakov. They come out looking a certain way. Um, but, but here's the point I want to key in on. When Yaakov Avinu was peeling these sticks, the Zohar says he was doing the mitzvah of tefillin. It's a very interesting idea that somehow peeling the sticks and exposing what was just behind the layer, that this somehow was doing the mitzvah to fill it. So, now, how, how could that be? How could that be? And it tells us something about the nature of the world and how it's different now than it was then. And this is just worth, worth thinking about. You see, every mitzvah has a body and has a soul. So the body of tefillin would be the actual boxes of tefillin and the straps and the, the parchment with the Shema, Shema Yisrael, our declaration of faith, inside. And it's actually quite amazing what's going on with the tefillin. It's going on over your heart, and it's going on your forehead, which is that last spot to close up. It's almost like where other traditions have the concept of a third eye, which is this, this sort of portal for mystical vision. That's where the tefillin goes. And actually, you know, every person is, has spelled out on their body in terms of their body structure the name of Hashem, the Yud and He and Vav and He, the way it works is your head is a Yud and it actually looks like a, a Yud if you see it in profile. It looks like the letter Yud. And then your torso is the letter He and then your, actually I should say your arms and your upper body are the letter He and then your torso is the Vav, and your 
legs are the letter He. So you have Yud and He and Vav and He. So that's, that's quite amazing, actually, that every person actually spells out the name of God just physically. Now, the Yud has something called the Kotz Shel Yud, which is if you look at the letter Yud, there's actually a point at the top of the Yud, which is an amazing subject in itself. We've touched on it in different, different times. It's the, what they call the Kav. It's the ray of light that Hashem shines into the initial aspect of creation in terms of creating the world. That's the tip of the Yud. So, so when a man puts on tefillin, that tefillin on top of his head, if the head is the Yud, the tefillin correlates with the Kot Shel Yud, the tip of the Yud, which is actually that connection of transcendence beyond, 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 beyond. So it's very, 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 very intense. Um, so now listen to this. Every mitzvah has a body, and every mitzvah has a soul. So, interestingly, and it's funny, like my nephew pointed this out, and then I saw someone else wrote, wrote it down in a safer or something. If you look at the way the, the tefillin is shaped, the actual box, it actually has kind of the contours of the base of Migdash. And it's, it's kind, of, kind of interesting in that way. Um, anyway, so, so the box itself and the parchments itself would be the body of the mitzvah. And the soul of the mitzvah would be that, that either that region of heaven or that heavenly idea or that energy, however you want to express it, which, which the performance of this mitzvah is activating, right? Or harmonizing, however you want to understand it. But the point is, like, I'll give you another example in terms of tzedakah. The body of the mitzvah would be the coin or the check or the bill itself, and the soul of it would be all of the good that comes from having given that money. So every mitzvah has a body and every mitzvah has a soul. Now how could, how could Yaakov be doing the mitzvah of tefillin by peeling sticks? So before the Torah was given at Mount Sinai, there were ways, if you were someone on the level of Yaakov or Yitzchak or Abraham, there were ways to access the soul of the mitzvah not going through the body of the mitzvah. What happened at Mount Sinai, when it says that heaven came down to earth, what happened was, the soul of mitzvahs and the bodies of mitzvahs came down and became interlocked in a fixed way at that point. Meaning to say, after the Torah was given at Mount Sinai, in order to access the soul of the mitzvah, you would have to go through the body of the mitzvah. So in other words, now if I want to put on tefillin, I can't peel sticks. I have to actually put on tefillin. Or if I actually want to do whatever, whatever mitzvah, I have to go through the body of the mitzvah in order to access the soul of the mitzvah. These pathways have now become fixed in a way that they weren't fixed before the Torah was given at Mount Sinai. That's just a, that's an 
important that's an important thing to understand. We we have all sorts of questions about how could the Avos have done this and how could they have done that. Like for instance, I'll give you a, a wild example. You want to hear a, an even more amazing example? The Apter Rebbe points this out. We have a mitzvah that a man can't marry two sisters while they're alive. You can't do it. You can't be married simultaneously to two sisters. Here we see Yaakov was married to two sisters. And yet, we say he kept the mitzvahs. So how can he be married to two sisters and keep the mitzvah of not being married to two sisters? Because he accessed the soul of the mitzvah of not being married to two sisters with, while, he was, while still going through the body of being married to two sisters. Now, that's not, I'm sure that's not how he accessed the soul of that mitzvah. But nonetheless, he was able to access the soul of the mitzvah of not being married to two sisters while still being married to two sisters. Because those two things were not fixed in the way that they were after Mount Sinai. Before Mount Sinai, there were all sorts of spiritual paths in order to, to achieve the same ends. Now it's different. So, Yaakov and Esav. So, so in, you know, if you ever think you're having a bad day, just think about this for a moment. Lovin basically wants to kill Yaakov and his entire family. He escapes Lovin and then finds out that Esav is there with 400 men, an army that want to wipe him out. That's not a good day. You know, you've just been dealing with, like, a person who the Zohar says descended from the snake in the Garden of Eden. That's loving, right? And now, all of a sudden, you're, you know, it's sort of like, okay, now the entree is the snake from the Garden of Eden, and then for dessert, you've got evil incarnate. You know, it's like, oh, man, that's, that's rough. That's seriously rough. Like, how he was able to hold it together. And by the way, it says he was afraid. Yaakov Avinu, it says right in the Torah itself, was afraid. So if you experience fear in your life, just remind yourself that Yaakov himself was afraid. You know, you're allowed to be afraid. Fear is normal. But just you have to also know that there's a God and God is taking care of you. But don't, don't hate yourself for being afraid. Because it's, it happens, you know. By the way, it says that when we go into battle, there's actually a mitzvah that says you're not allowed to be afraid. And I heard Rabbi Grossman say something very wonderful on this subject. He says, how is it possible if you're in battle and there are bullets whistling above your head not to be afraid? What are you going to do? Are you going to remind yourself, oh, there's a Torah mitzvah not to be afraid? I mean, it's, it's not very realistic. So... What he said was, and I thought this was a great life lesson, he says, you have to prepare yourself before you go into battle not to be afraid. If you want to be able to keep that level, you have to prepare yourself in advance. And that's true for so many things in terms of temper, in terms of getting angry, in terms of anticipating, I've got a business meeting right now. I know what's going to go down in that business meeting. I know who the personalities are. Or even if I don't know who the personalities are, I know what's at stake right now. 
You've got to think in advance what's about to go down. You've got to understand what buttons I'm about to meet my mom. And I know what it is every time I sit down with my mom or every time I sit down with my dad. I always know where the conversation goes. You have to prepare yourself in advance. And you have to have what to say in order to, to deal with it. That, that, that's how it's done. So, so you have, you have some, some very amazing things going on in terms of Yaakov and, and Esav. So, so let's just talk about the bowing for a moment. Because I came across this amazing gematria in the Chabad uh, Chumash here. And I want to share it with you. Amazing, really an amazing gematria. So, so what happened was, Yaakov sends all these presents to Esav. And he spaces them out. So, there first comes the first set. And then, a little bit later comes the next set. And like there are these waves of presents that come. And then, Yaakov bows down seven times before Esav. And Esav hugs him and he kisses him on the neck and he starts crying. So we're going to talk about the bowing and the kissing for a moment. Okay? Now, interestingly, there's an opinion of the rabbis, which is that Yaakov bowed down to Esav too much. That he shouldn't have bowed down. And fascinatingly, Right after this encounter with Yaakov and Esav is completed, you have the rape of Dina. One of the horrible episodes in the whole Torah. And they say that the reason, there's an opinion that the reason why she met that horrible um, occurrence was because they said, well, Yaakov is bowing down so much to Esav the Jews are weak, we can take advantage of them. We don't have to be careful in terms of our behavior with them. I had never heard that before. That's a fascinating viewpoint. All right, so that's one opinion. There are lots of different... So you have to triangulate all these things. No one's... When you hear an opposite opinion, they're not disagreeing, they're just approaching it from a different angle. And then you have to balance them all together and decide how to act in a certain situation. It's like any time you learn a certain thing, like for instance, don't get angry, right? Okay, it's true that anger is even compared to idol worship by the rabbis in the Gomorrah. Why? Because if, if I get angry at you, why am I getting angry at you? Everything comes from God. So if I'm getting angry at you, I'm according you a power that you don't have since it came from God. So if I'm saying you're an independent power other than God, that's like idol worship. Okay. However, the Rambam says, sometimes you've got to yell at people. You've got lazy workers or children. Sometimes you've got to yell at them. But you can't get angry. You have to put a mask of anger on. The anger can't be from your heart. And I'll tell you, one of the greatest things I ever heard Reb Shlomo Karlbach was being interviewed uh, by TV cameras in Germany. He arrived in Germany. His family was in Germany for hundreds of years. And uh, I think this was during the 1970s, I'm not sure. Anyway, so they greet him with news cameras at the airport. 
And they said to him, do you hate us? And he said, you know something? If I had two hearts, I could use one for loving and one for hating. But I only have one heart. So what can I do? I've got to use it for loving. Amazing response, right? So, but what I'm trying to tell you is that anytime you learn something new, see, this is why intelligence doesn't equal wisdom. What we want is wisdom. We don't want intelligence. Intelligence is good, but what you want is intelligence plus experience equals wisdom. You know? I had a huge fight with someone a number of years ago. I mean, terrible fight. Terrible fight. Not talking for years. Horrible, really. We're very close right now. If you... If you told me that that relationship was ever going to get repaired, I would have told you it's never going to get repaired because I know this type of personality and this is not going to get repaired. It's repaired in the most beautiful way. So, you know, you want intelligence plus experience equals wisdom. People who are just intelligent will lead you astray constantly. Constantly. You know, that's why we really have to value old people. Old people, even if they're not that smart, (laughs) have seen a lot. And having seen a lot, that in itself is a level of education which makes them smart in 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 a very critical way. Now if you've got a smart person who actually has experience, hang on to that person. Because that's really valuable. Um, so, so what I'm trying to tell you is that when you learn something new, when you hear a teaching, you have to know how to apply it. You can't just hear anger equals idol worship, which is true, by the way. That's from the Gomorrah. It's unassailable. And so you go, well, I'll never be angry. And yet you find yourself to be an employer and you've got lazy workers and you say, well, I learned I can't be angry. No, you've got to yell at them. But you can't get angry at them. But how can I yell without getting angry? Ah, the Rambam put a mask of anger on. It's like, a, it's like okay, and now I realize, you see, now this is how you apply things. But this takes some learning. That's what I'm trying to tell you. You have to learn. When you hear the first thing, that's just the, that's just the first thing. There's always going to be more. And the problem is, is that we're so used to... See, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says something very, very important. He says that every new level of wisdom, you have to realize that you know nothing. See, that's, that's a problem, though. Because if someone sticks a, a million-dollar check in my pocket... At that moment, I'm feeling rich, not broke. So how do I, if I learn something new and exciting, how do I feel like I don't know nothing at that moment when I'm feeling at that point like I know something? How do you do it? So I'm going to tell you how to do it. Again, one of the greatest things I ever heard from Reb Shlomo, he said the following, every new piece of information you learn you have to treat like a piece of a puzzle 
that you don't have the other pieces to. Now let's just think about that for a moment because it's super brilliant. You see, if I get something new, I think I've attained something. But if I get something new and I understand that's just a piece of a puzzle that I don't have the other pieces to, then simultaneously I've acquired something while at the same time I have the proper perspective of understanding how much I don't know within that topic. You with me? Very, that's a very essential thing to maintaining humility and yet growing in wisdom simultaneously. Very, very essential tool. So now, Yaakov is bowing down before Asaph. Alright? And he's really trying to make peace. Okay, so there's an opinion that he went too far. Okay? Alright, so... So, uh, so, so let's keep on going. Now, there's another opinion that when he was bowing down, what he was doing was elevating Asaph. He was elevating the sparks within Asaph. How does that work? Now, listen to this. We're going to hear it on a mathematical level how that works, okay? An exciting gematria. You ready? So, remember... Yaakov and Esav are twins, and their father is Yitzchak. Okay? So, a very important gematria that everyone should know, whether you know any gematrias or not, is the name of Hashem. So, the name of Hashem, the Yudke Vavke, is 26. That's a, just a basic Jewish literacy there. You should just know that. Okay. So, now you take the name Yitzchak, and Yitzchak, very amazingly, is a factor of 26. The gematria for Yitzchak is 8 times 26. So that's, that's very interesting. That's very beautiful. Right? And that adds up to um, 208. Okay? But the main thing is we're going to work within denominations of 26 right now. So Yitzchak, the father of Yaakov and Esav, is 8 times the name of God. 8 times 26. Yaakov is... Seven times 26. Exactly. Okay? And that's uh, the number 182. So you see, the father is eight times 26, eight times the name of God. Yaakov is seven times the name of God. That leaves over what? One portion. Right? One portion of 26, right? Because the father is eight, the son is seven. So that leaves over one portion. So Esau gets one portion of 26, but that means that there are seven portions left. So interestingly, to round out his gematria, it's seven times the word for impurity. Tame. Seven times Tame equals 350 plus 26 is the gematria of the name of Esav. So in other words, Esav, mostly impure, but then got one measure of Kedusha, of holiness, from his dad. So in other words, Yaakov, who's seven times the name of God, and Esav, who's seven times the name of impurity, what does Yaakov do? He bows down, how many times? Seven times 
to Esav each time uplifting a measure of Esav and bringing it to Kedusha, to bringing it to purity, to trying to uplift it. You know, I wanted to add as a P.S. That's the thought. So, this is very much a P.S. But if we're saying that Esav is seven parts, or was seven parts Tame, and then one part Kedusha, right? So that would make him eight measures, right? Seven impure, one pure. You want to hear something interesting? The rabbis teach that Esav's head is buried in Mors Hamach Pela. And if you look at the average height of a person, they're about eight heads tall. And interestingly, we say he was one-eighth, if you will, holy, and his head gets buried in Mors Hamach Pelah. Now, I didn't take out a ruler and, 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 and confirm all these measures and everything like that, but that's, I was just kind of looking at people when this thought popped into my head, and I think it kind of works out. So, that's just an aside. All right. Now, let's get up to the kiss. The kiss is really interesting. What happens is, and you can look, you can see this yourself, it's verse in, uh, in Brachis, in Genesis 33, verse 4. The word is, Vayishakehu, and that means to kiss, and there are dots over that word. You can see it. It's, um... I'm just uh, showing you. So, it doesn't, it, it's very rare in the Torah where the rabbis will put dots on top of a word. And what that means is, don't just read past that word. That word is really, really important. There's a lot going on in terms of that word. So if you look at this simple presentation of what's going on, it reads that Esav, quite surprisingly, considering he's got 400 soldiers there, and he's already pledged to kill Yaakov, right? Um, Kisses Yaakov, and then cries on his neck. Now the rabbis say that, um, what, here's really what happened, Okay. Esav tried to bite the juggler vein, tried to bite the neck of Yaakov to kill him. Yaakov's neck miraculously turned to marble. Esav broke his teeth and started crying on his neck. Right? One of the wilder Midrashim. So you say, well, what happened? Did they really reconcile? Did they not reconcile? Like, what happened? So you've got advocates that Esav really was, you know, trying to make peace. And you've got other people going, you're deluding yourself. That is not what was going on. So, so there are these strong opinions. But 
I would say from my learning, the, the, it would seem like the, the great majority of thought is certainly that Asa remained a great antagonist. And, and that there's a little bit of wishful thinking seemingly going on on the other side. But nonetheless, you know, it does say the word kiss. Now let's go more deeply into this. Because I saw Rabbi Wolfson bring down a very interesting point. You see, how do they learn out the word kiss? Because if you substitute the letter kuf for the letter kaf, which both make the same sound, it spells, it, it turns the word from the word bite to the word kiss. Okay? Now, why can you exchange those things? Now, we've talked about this, and if you want to hear a talk on this subject, it's actually kind of an interesting talk. It's called Portals to Other Dimensions, where I just talk about all the different levels in the Torah. You see, it's sort of like if you imagine radio waves, if you will, you've got AM and FM. Now, anyone who knows anything about radio waves can tell you that is the smallest spectrums of what's going on in the world in terms of radio waves. There are massive numbers of radio waves, massive numbers and spectrums going on all of the time. And I was just listening to a, a show about these people who were like way into it. And, you know, you can actually hear jet fighters flying over like the Atlantic and the Pacific right now, you know, doing missions. If you've got the right radio frequency, you can hear them. And they talk in code like, you know, Joker 1, Charlie 5, you know, they, they've got all these like, you know, Air Force code and terminology. You can hear police officers, you can hear fire stations, you can hear people on cordless phones talking to each other. There are tons of radio spectrums going on. The same is true in terms of the Torah. The Torah, this is like FM, what we've got over here in terms of the printed text. But there are so many frequencies going on and so many methodologies, like shortwave radios that the rabbis have given us to how to access other frequencies in the text itself. So one of these frequencies is called interchangeable letters. Now, interestingly, the way the mouth works is there are certain letters that come from different parts of the mouth. So, for instance, P, if you make the sound P, goes P, P, B, B. So, P and B, in fact, there's some cultures where they pronounce P's like B's. Like, I think certain Arabs say pizza instead of pizza. Right? So, because it's coming from the P sound. Now, Kaf and Chaf are coming from the throat. K. If you just put your hands on your throat, you can feel it. K, K. But they're two different letters. So any, any L comes from the tongue. You can feel your tongue against your teeth making L. L. That's another region. So you've got these different regions of the mouth that, that pronounce different groups of letters. Now you can exchange letters coming from the same parts of your mouth. And it gives you different insights into what's going on with the words of the Torah and different ways of accessing what God is talking about. Because the Torah, remember, is the infinite compressed into the finite. 
So there are all these different ways of figuring out how much is actually being said over here. Interestingly, and it came to me, but this is maybe obvious, what is this event talking about? He goes to kiss him on the neck, or, but really we say he was biting him on the neck, right? So, how do you get kiss to bite? You change kuf to kuf, and both of those hands come, come from where? K, from the neck, which is where the whole activity of this event took place, the neck. So what's so dramatic to me about that point is that we're going from an incredibly esoteric concept, letters of exchange, accessing different frequencies of the Torah, and what's it coming back to? The neck, the most physical thing in the world, which is the headquarters of where this story is taking place. Look how all-encompassing the Torah is. Look how it's dealing simultaneously with so many different areas all at once. It's miraculous, actually. All right. I want to... All right, maybe, maybe we'll just end with this last thought, which is the end of the meeting between Yaakov and Esav. It's actually, it's so intense. It's a... Uh, Chapter 33, verse um, 14. This is, all of chapter 33 is the encounter. I'll just give you the, the end, basically. By the way, I'll just tell you something quickly. Yaakov gives Esav seemingly a compliment. And again, these things are going on so many different levels. You know, are they really reconciling? Are they not reconciling? Like, what's going on? But just the subtext of this is fascinating. Yaakov says to uh, Esav, um, this is not verse 14, but I'll get to that in a moment. He says, you have the face of an angel. Right? Now, what a compliment. But the commentaries say the following. Do you know what Yaakov was communicating to Esav? I know what the angels look like because I see angels. Do you really want to mess with me? So on the one hand, it's like, oh, you have the face of an angel. What a beautiful compliment. The next thing is, wait a second. You see angels? Like, that's what... <laughs> like, maybe I don't want to attack you. Amazing. Again, how many levels the Torah is working at, you know? That's why anyone who... It's such an insult. It's such an insult to use the term fundamentalist. Especially to describe a... I mean, I'm, I'm talking about, in terms of trying to describe a Torah Jew, someone who, who takes the Torah as the word of God, to describe a person like that as a fundamentalist, a fundamentalist is so ignorant. It's so ignorant because it's, it's completely not understanding the massive subtleties and the massive sophistication that's involved in all aspects of Torah study and Torah observance, and and the and the and the outlook of the cosmos, which is so ridiculously advanced. Anyway, so let's just get to the end here, and we'll, we'll finish up with this. So seemingly they've reconciled. Certainly they've avoided a battle. 
certainly they're on as good terms as they've seemingly ever been at this point. So it's a win. It's a win on both sides at this point. So, great. So this, is, this meeting has actually worked. It's a big success. But now listen to this. Um, Asaph says to him at the end, right? He says, verse 12, and he said, travel on and let us go. I will proceed alongside you. Meaning, oh, you're not escaping so quickly. Oh, you thought you were just going to go? You were just going to make up and you're going to go and do your thing? Not so fast. Right? And then Yaakov says back to him, verse 13, but he said to him, My Lord knows that the children are tender and the nursing flocks and cattle are upon me. If they will be driven too hard for a single day, then all the flocks will die. Let my Lord go ahead of his servant. I will make my way at my slow pace according to the gate, that means the pace, of the drove before me and the gate of the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. Then Asaph says to him, let me assign to you some of the people who are with me. In other words, not so fast, not so fast. Let me just uh, give you some guards. Right? Quote, unquote. And he said to him, to what purpose? Let me just have favor in my Lord's eyes. And then Esau goes, okay, all right, I'm just going to go ahead to Mount Seir, and that'll, that'll be that. So I just want to give a, an interpretation, my interpretation here, because certainly there's a... Um, a tradition to understand that Esav stands for the Yetzahara, for the, for the negative inclination. And so, so, so listen to what Yaakov says, and I'm talking about all of us right now in terms of our own spiritual development, okay? Yaakov says to him, let my Lord go ahead of his servant, I will make my way at my slow pace, according to the gate of the drove here and the gate of the children, until I come to my Lord at Seir. So, so this is a very, very deep answer if you understand it on a spiritual level. You see, sometimes the Sahara comes to you dressed as a rabbi. Sometimes he comes to you looking like a devil, so to speak. Do this. Eat that. Say this, right? That's the devil on your shoulder, so to speak. And you can pretty much tell if you're being urged to do something that you know in your heart you're not supposed to do. That's pretty clear. What's much more complicated is when, when it comes appearing to you as a shining light and tells you to observe something you're not quite ready to observe yet, in order to bring you to a level that you're not at, knowing that you're going to drop that level and then give the entire thing up. See, the Yetzirah is very tricky. They'll say, okay, you want to do mitzvahs for two weeks. 
you'll never be able to maintain that level. You'll become depressed and you'll boot the entire program. I'll take two weeks of mitzvahs for a lifetime of nothing. Sounds like a good deal to me. Does that mean that a person can never advance? A person has to advance. If a person doesn't advance and they're throwing away their life. So you have to advance, but at what pace? At what pace? So Yaakov says, Esav says, come, I'll lead you. So in other words, you will make progress with me. So it seems to be anyone who's telling you to make spiritual progress must be coming from the good side, right? Otherwise, why is he even bothering to tell you to make progress in this spiritual path? Not always. You have to be very careful. Very careful. The person has to know you. You have to know the person. So Yaakov says, if I go too fast, it's going to kill me. It's going to kill my flocks and it's going to kill my children. But interestingly, what does he say first? It's going to kill my flocks. The flocks meaning the animals. It's going to kill my animal nature. In other words, if I go too fast, the animal nature within me is going to throw this whole thing off. My own Yetzirah inside me is going to throw this entire thing off. I'll boot it. I'll run from it. And my children also, even that more protected, good side of me, might get negatively affected, God forbid. Right? So, so Yaakov says, I'll be the shepherd. Yaakov, remember, Yaakov is spelled yud Akeb. Yud, meaning the Yud of the Yud Kei Vav Kei, the highest emanations, right? Ekev means heal. So Yaakov is the bridge from the highest aspects of heaven all the way down to this realm. So Yaakov, who represents full integration, says, I'll, I'll lead, I'll lead. So, so it has to come, all spiritual advice has to come from a place of integration and understanding. Not just do it for its own sake. There's also a time for that, by the way. But it has to be proposed by someone who knows what they're talking about. And who knows you. Okay, have a good week.